Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Father Peter Stravinskis. He is editor of the Catholic Response and president of the Catholic Education Foundation. We've checked in with him before on issues of the church and religious practice and where the church stands in society. And certainly we see an evolution right now in the present crisis. And so welcome, Father Stravinskis. Good to be with you, Mark. Uh, Under normal circumstances, we'd have a nice post-podcast dinner at that nice Italian restaurant next to the first thing's office. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, But None of those restaurants are open in New York <laughs> right 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 now. We're in we're we're in an extreme situation. You're located in New Jersey and I thought I would just ask you first. You run a summer program at is that still at Seton Hall University? That's correct. Yes. Yes. Are you are you running it? Well, why, why, don't, you, why don't you tell our listeners what that program is and are you running it this summer? Are you on? Okay, well, we hope so. Um the uh as, as you know, because you've participated, we have an annual uh, summer program for priests on their role in Catholic schools. And uh, it's scheduled for uh, July 14 to 16 at Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey. Uh, I've gotten word that the university's summer school classes are all going to be online. However, conferences are still on if the conference directors want to move in that direction, which I do. So uh, I'm hoping that um, we will be uh, out of prison by then. And uh, and it looks as though we will be. So yes, uh, that program will be on. And if people want further information on that, uh, they can go to our website, uh, catholiceducation.foundation. And uh, there's information about that program. It's for uh, priests, bishops, and seminarians. So if you know of anyone that might fit into that category and need uh, and would benefit from a program such as that, uh, please uh, pass the word along. Very good. Uh, and what are the dates again? July 14, 15, 16. Okay. Well, let's hope that we're, we're out of the woods uh, at, at that time. Uh, you know, my son had a summer school, uh, for a music summer school up in Boston in mid-July. They canceled it a month ago. And I thought that was a little early, but uh, we'll, you know, I guess uh, extreme measures were, were taken. And this leads into the question of the church, the church's role. Uh, what did the church, overall, what did the church's 
decide, maybe if you want to talk more locally, you're in New Jersey, or if you want to look at the national picture, what was the predominant thinking behind the church's decisions in terms of closing the churches or adapting services online and so on? Uh, well, I think it's a, you know, it's a mixed bag. It very much depends on the, on the local situation. And as people know, there are many areas of the country that are very, very lightly, mildly affected by this. And then there are other areas that are hotspots. And, uh, and I think the ecclesiastical response has been connected to, to that aspect of the reality, which makes, which obviously makes sense. Um, I think that, um, some dioceses have uh, have gone overboard with their restrictions. Uh, I see no reason, for example, why churches can't remain open uh, for private prayer. Uh, I know a number of the churches in New York City were were open and had exposition of the Blessed Sacrament from let's say 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and people were you know going to church and keeping the safe distance. I mean, uh, if you have a church open during the week. You're not going to have 700 people that you would have for a 10 o'clock mass on Sunday morning. Uh, that's, but, and I think people were observing that, and that should, I think that's going to be restored pretty quickly in places that uh, perhaps panicked, I think. And, uh, and of course, as we know, uh, the media has not been very helpful in all of this. Uh, there's no way that uh, people can even breathe without hearing about where this is and where it's going. And, with bizarre predictions about you know a quarter of a million people dead in the country, uh, and you can almost sense the uh, disappointment in the media as they announce that well, gee, it's not even you know maybe it's twenty thousand. Uh, it's a big difference, huh? Uh, and then on the other side, there are people, Catholics, and I would say uh, devout, sincere Catholics, who have condemned any measures that the dioceses have taken in in this regard. And you know, they talk about being deprived of the Eucharist and, and so forth. And, and those are noble sentiments. But there are a number of issues that need to be weighed in here. Uh, and first of all, I would make the point that uh, suspending public worship uh, is not a, a sort of modern New Age phenomenon for the church. Uh, at the time of the Spanish flu, bishops all around the country, so that's literally a century ago, um, closed churches for public worship for the most part. And, uh, and in the 19th century in New York City, uh, Archbishop John Hughes, who was certainly a kind of in-your-face type of Catholic leader, uh, he closed the churches during the cholera epidemic in, in New York. And uh, so I don't think we can say that, you know, this is something that's, uh, you know, unheard of. It's unheard of in our time because the situation is unheard of until our time. That said, I'm, I'm not very comfortable with all of the live streaming of masses. I don't think mass is intended to be live streamed. I don't think Jesus had that in mind. Uh, and my big concern is now that people for a month have gotten into the, the routine, perhaps, of watching mass on their living room sofa, sipping a cup of coffee, um, are they going to be very eager to return to normal practice of the faith, which is precisely a live, not a virtual experience? And then along with that, and this goes back to the other question about people being offended by 
lack of access to the sacraments, I think we have to understand that uh, this is not something that is perduring for for months and years. This is a very temporary uh, suspension. And uh, I pointed out to a few people, uh, the Catholics in Japan uh, endured 250 years without sacraments. Uh, they maintained the faith, and all the priests and the missionaries had either been exiled or killed. Uh, and uh, you know, and, and they they maintained the, their commitment to Christ and the Church, uh, or the situation in 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 the gulags or the concentration camps where there was not even a hint of how this might you know resolve itself uh, in people's lifetimes even. So uh, and also, <clears throat> uh, I would hope that it gets Catholics uh, off the idea that every time they go to Mass, they have to receive Holy Communion. The primary purpose of, of the Mass is the worship of the triune God. Uh, ideally, uh, people should receive Holy Communion. That's presuming that they're in a state of grace and, and, and everything else that goes with that. Um, but uh, too often, the past 50 years, uh, the presumption is that uh, comes time for Communion, it's like a Chinese fire drill. Everybody jumps out of the pew, uh, which in effect almost forces people who are not prepared to receive communion to do so. And so perhaps uh, this would have created uh, a more um, a greater longing for reception of the sacrament, uh, and perhaps giving some more, more uh, forethought to receptions that are not routine, mechanistic, and so on. What would you advise the priests to do apart from keeping the church open for private prayer and maybe having you know, an usher there just to help people come in and maintain the, the, the social distancing? What should the priests do apart from the private prayer regarding the Mass? Um, well, I think the first point that needs to be made and etched into the consciousness of, of Catholic people is that priests are or should be continuing to celebrate Holy Mass under the, circum under the present circumstances, which is to say, uh, Mass celebrated without a congregation. And, and this underscores the fact that, uh, number one, the Mass is of inestimable value, uh, whether or not there are lay people present. It underscores the essential role of the priest in the celebration of the sacraments. Um, we're not congregationalists or, or anything of that nature. We believe in a, a church that is uh, ministered by ordained priests. Uh, I would suggest that priests, uh, for, and also that priests would be available for the sacrament of penance for those who request it, uh, you know, perhaps by appointment. Uh, certainly. Uh, the last rites when needed, uh, and it's been disturbing to hear some priests say they've been called to hospitals, gone there, and been, been turned away by medical staff. Um, and uh, I, that's an outrageous uh, approach because, first of all, everybody knows that when people are at peace with their God, uh, they're easier to heal. <laughs> uh, that's just a, a medical fact. That's all been documented very well. Uh, but you can see that in some places there is a real 
uh, anti-religious bias that manifests itself in, in those circumstances. A, a priest told me the other day that <clears throat> he went to a hospital and he was barred and he happened to have the phone number of the director of the hospital and it took the director of the hospital's direct intervention to get him access to a woman who, um, who was in isolation. Uh, the, the other thing is that I think using uh, live streaming, that priests could uh, uh, offer uh, prayer services, novenas, rosaries, uh, preaching, uh, maybe uh, read for the people the gospel of the day and, uh, and give a short reflection on it. Uh, and I think all of that uh, maintains the, the human contact, as it were, um, without going in the, in the direction of, and, and also, I mean, I, I hate to say this in a public forum, but uh, some priests have gotten themselves so attached to be, being uh, sort of a, a ringleader uh, or the, uh, the top of the show that that's what's really missed. And, uh, and now, you know, they're forced to understand that the, uh, the role of the priest is, is not to entertain an audience, uh, but it's to, to lead people in the worship of God. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a theologian. I, I just came back into the church uh, four or five years ago. Uh, I, I actually came in in a, a church that's very important to me, even though I've moved away from New York City. It's up on Lexington and what, 60, 64, 66, uh, St. Vincent Ferrer. I love, I, I loved going inside the church and just, sometimes I would just go there. My son was in school nearby. I would just go there and sit. And they're back in, in the shadows. I would just go there and sit and let, let the world drift away for a while. And I, that is, I think, one of the big values of keeping the churches open for, for the private prayer, just giving a place for people to go and have them, you know, sit in, in the temple, in, in contemplation of something beyond, beyond the world. And that value is, is, just, is just tremendous. It's very important. So that's what makes me a little dismayed that the churches, not, not just suspend the masses, I'm, I'm kind of not going to weigh in on that question, but shutting the doors entirely, I, I thought there, there must be a way to maintain the church. Uh, first of all, you're you're highlighting St. Vincent Ferrer on Lexington Avenue in, in uh, Manhattan. Uh, as people should know or will know if they look it up, it's the finest example of English Gothic in the New World. And so uh, the minute you walk in, you're overwhelmed in, in the best sense of the word by, by the beauty and the, and the otherworldliness of the entire environment. And then secondly, that parish is staffed by the Dominican fathers uh, of this province of the Northeast, uh, who are just superb priests, and they're completely overloaded with vocations, which uh, is rather unusual. In fact, they have more seminarians uh, at present than they had in 1950. So it's just a, it's a wonderful parish. And uh, but you're you're talking about you know going into a church and sitting in the back and and being uh, lost in contemplation. It reminds me of the story from St. John Vianney, the Curie of Ars, where there was an old gent 
who used to go into the church every day and sit in the back and say nothing, do nothing. And uh, uh, John Vianney approached him one day and said, um, what, what do you do? Uh, what do you do for the time that you're there? And he said, I look at him and he looks at me. Uh, beautiful, beautiful statement of, of a very, very profound spirituality. I, I guess they worry that, well, if someone was sitting in that spot and, and, and was praying and had, had, had his hands on the back of the pew in front and someone comes in 10 minutes later and it looks like a vacant space, but there's still virus perhaps on, on the back. So we've got to keep, and, and I mean, these words, I don't know why you, you can't say to, to people, don't, don't touch anything or, uh, you know, while, while you're inside work, where, where uh, uh, yeah. And I mean, there must, there must be a way. Now, let me mention another thing that has come out to me. You know, I, I wrote a book about a, a riot that took place in Atlanta. I wrote this 20 years ago. The riot took place in Atlanta in 1906. And I went back through all these archival documents trying to recover what happened in, in the city and setting the context. And I went into city council records, aldermen meetings, uh, the newspapers. And one thing I found was that the city rarely made a big decision without consulting with church leaders in the city. Church leaders, would they would come in to city council meetings and they would testify. They were looked upon as serious guides to the direction of the city on all kinds of policies. The newspapers, there were four or five newspapers in the city at that time, the newspapers would print on Monday, or maybe it was on the Sunday paper, Sunday evening paper, they would print summaries of all the sermons given by the ministers and, and pastors and priests in, in the city for that day. And it, it was clear to me that the sermons were sent to the newspapers so that the newspapers would record. Now, the, the issue here is that all the religious leaders in the city had a high public visibility. And what, what, what has been dismaying to me, again, as sort of an outsider to theological issues, is how in all of the debates and discussions about the coronavirus, we don't see more religious leaders on, on the local or national news. We don't see them much on the cable news shows. Why aren't they again, more visible in public debates about these matters. I mean, we have, we've got all the public health experts. Can we have some spiritual health experts on, 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 on the airwaves a little bit, Father Stravinskis? Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, again, it's, uh, it's <laughs> a catch as catch can. Uh, I would say, for example, uh, NBC in New York uh, very, very frequently has Cardinal Dolan uh, come and make a, a few remarks um, and, and that was the case, and that was the case during during Holy Week, um, and I think you know periodically during this whole pandemic. Uh, but the mainstream media, as you well know, uh, uh, are very, very much anti-religion in general and anti-Catholic in particular. Uh, all of the surveys show, you know, the famous uh, Lichter Rothman survey of, of the media attitudes toward issues and then comparing and contrasting them really with those attitudes of the uh, general public. Um, 
you know, whereas 95% of Americans uh, believe in being, uh, the medium uh, uh, elite, uh, that's down to about 30% there. So, I mean, their whole view of reality is completely skewed. And, uh, and uh, but, you know, a bishop in Italy made the point that uh, it was interesting when they did the shutdown there that, you know, the government identified so-called essential services. And he said, can you explain to me why a tobacco shop is an essential service and a church is not? And, uh, and you see, again, that, that secularism that has creeped into uh, all of, of Western society for all practical purposes. Huh? Well, I, I did a, a blog post on the First Things website. I'm down in Florida right now. And the governor of Florida put out the, the stay-at-home order, but under essential activities, he listed number one, religious services. And the interesting thing was a lot of local leaders, uh, the mayors of Tampa, of St. Petersburg, and some of the counties in Florida, they, they said no. They really attacked the governor for exempting religious, for seeing religious activity as something that was exempt from this stay-at-home order. And it really, really became here in Florida, kind of a local, local level, state level conflict. And what bothered me about the local leaders' response wasn't so much their, their concerns, their worries, maybe their exaggerations, but the fact that the idea of spiritual health as part of public health didn't even register. It wasn't even meaningful to them in any way. These were people 100% secularized. And the people, the public that they represent is not that way. How did this happen? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's the taking control that has happened over a long, long period of time. And, uh, and as I say, that Lichter-Rothman uh, study, the, which is constantly updated, I believe, uh, that I think came out the first time in 1980, uh, and it showed clearly the the huge gap between the media elite and uh, the average American, and uh, and that and that gap has probably just widened over the past. And of course, like begets like. So if if I'm the uh, the anchor for ABC. Uh, and I have influence about what reporters are going to be brought on board. I find someone like myself. I don't uh, bring somebody else into the picture who would contradict my point, uh, my approach to life, huh? Right, right. Well, you you're in New Jersey. You're not that far from New York City. How have the state regulations and directives? How have those affected you? Well. Of course, in New Jersey, we have an absolutely hopeless governor. Uh, I mean, he's totally useless. He's an extreme left wing, claims to be a Catholic, uh, of course, represents nothing uh, of Catholic understanding of life. And, uh, and I mean, he's so irrelevant that uh, when he puts his daily uh, briefing on and he uh, bloviates for five or 10 minutes, it's so bad that uh, CBS knocks him off and puts Judge Judy back on. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where we are. Uh, and uh, so 
I, I don't know. He, you know, he, he he's a fear monger. Uh, he wants to, he said he'd like to keep the state closed down until November. Um, November. Uh, I mean, it's all in, oh yeah, it's all insanity. And uh, so, you know, here, I think he wants people to wear masks going into supermarkets and, uh, and the truth of the matter is now, Bergen County, New Jersey, is the spot for the state. Of course, it's very, very close to New York City, as you know. And I'm sure that's part of the problem was this back and forth. Uh, but here in Ocean County, Monmouth County, on, on the shore, uh, the, the situation is very, very light. Uh, I was looking at some statistics uh, yesterday for Ocean County, and... Uh, you know, fewer than 100 people have have died. And as we have to make the point as well, uh, most of these people were with very serious uh, cases. And also now there's a new dishonesty that has entered into it. A nurse told me the other day that they've been instructed to list as a corona death virus any death that occurs at this moment. Uh, And that's obviously done to inflate the figures uh, to make this look like what they had predicted. Uh, and then secondly, uh, this, and this creates this whole culture of fear, uh, which is far worse than anything of the virus itself, because it uh, makes people act irrationally. And, uh, uh, I was in the supermarket the other day and the, and the woman, uh, cashier at checkout, she said, father, uh, could you, uh, say a prayer for me? And I said, sure, anything in particular? And she said, yeah, yesterday I just sat on my sofa and wept for an hour and a half. I said, about what? And she said, I kept saying, will I ever see my grandchildren again? And she said, and my husband yelled, turn off the damn television. I said, your husband is a wise, your husband is a wise man. But you see how this, I mean, you know, this has just, uh, I was coming out of a, a public school about three weeks ago. I had to do a, a teacher evaluation. And, uh, and as I approached the parking lot, there were three mommies on the parking lot. And uh, as I got close to my car, the one woman said, is it that bad? And I said, what, do you, what are you talking about? She said, they had to call for a priest. And I said, for what? She said, someone is dying of a virus in the school. I said, I said, I said, ma'am, you need to see a psychiatrist. And, uh, and her two lady friends said, that's what we've been telling her. But you see, I mean, this is talk about irrational behavior, huh? Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the rush on, on toilet paper. I mean, do they think that's a vaccine? Uh, I mean, this has all been fostered, I mean, perpetuated by the media and, uh, and there is a very serious spiritual component to all of this that needs to be addressed. And, and by you know, putting religion as a non-essential service, we show exactly what has happened here. Huh? Do you think that if there, it's not, not, not to say a conspiracy, but do you think that there is a, a, an impulse or a motivation on the part of some politicians to see a situation like this as a an occasion for the advance of the state and that the church as something of a counter institution simply needs 
to buckle under and go with with our with our mandates. Yeah, and uh, you know we we see the the attacks on uh, the First Amendment religion uh, clauses uh, happening all the time, and um, you know in the Obama administration, for heaven's sake, that's where we started you know attacking nuns, forcing trying to force them uh, to give out contraceptives. Um, and uh, so, no, this is nothing new. And uh, and uh, the church obviously has to take a, um, an important measure of what can and cannot be done in a situation like this. But at the same time, uh, to make it eminently clear that we're not buckling uh, uh, before the, uh, the the God of the state. And uh, I suspect, by the way, that one of the reasons that dioceses closed down as quickly as they did was precisely to avoid uh, the impression that they were doing it at the behest of the state. They did it before states tried to do it. Uh, That may have been a wise approach. Uh, How soon will the churches open back up once the stay-at-home orders are lifted state by state, will they instantly return to normal operations? Well, again, I think that's going to depend on the situation in in each location. Uh, you know, one size doesn't fit all, and uh, I would certainly hope that the minute it becomes feasible to open up, uh, certainly at least to open up for private prayer. And then in limited ways, uh, uh, services conducted with, you know, uh, a limited number of people and gradually expanding that. Uh, I think all of that makes sense. And certainly uh, the clergy that I know are, are prepared to do that. So uh, that's, that's something to be uh, uh, anticipated uh, with some eagerness, I would say. You know, I'm, I'm tempted to make an optimistic projection and say that when masses return, when the churches open back up, that three weeks in, we might see some of the biggest mass crowds, excluding Christmas and Easter. What do you think? Well, uh, I think you're, you're perhaps a little too optimistic on that front. Uh, if we If we remember... In the aftermath of 9-11, uh, the two or three Sundays after that, churches were packed as though it were Christmas or Easter, uh, and that fell off. Uh, and in, I suspect that in this situation, we may find exactly the same thing. There might be a, a little bit of a bump, uh, but I don't anticipate that uh, because we have such a secularized culture at this point and people very comfortable in that uh, mode of living. Uh, I would say this, though, that's very interesting. Uh, a lot of churches, a lot of pastors were concerned about their financial stability in this situation. If people aren't in the church uh, contributing, you know, the bills still come in, you know, the insurance and all the rest of it, uh, all of those things still have to be paid. And, uh, and pastors have told me uh, one one priest told me his normal Sunday collection is four thousand dollars, and last week, uh, not uh, well. Let's see. I guess Palm Sunday, 
his collection was eight thousand uh, dollars. Another priest, another priest told me that uh, some a couple came and asked if they could go to confession uh, uh, sometime during Holy Week. They made the appointment, and uh, at the end, uh, the couple handed the priest an envelope, and there was a five thousand dollar check in there. Uh, so I think devout people uh, will be even more appreciative and and respond appropriately. And I think you know, you know, the indifferent will, for the most part, probably remain indifferent. Uh, but after all, that's the way people reacted to Christ during his earthly life and ministry. You know, you had those who were excited for him and those excited against him and, and the vast middle who probably didn't even know he existed. Uh, and, uh, you know, when Pope John Paul repeatedly talked about a culture in which people live as if, as if there is no God. And I think that's pretty much where, you know, the average American finds himself, you know, yeah, there's, there's some kind of a Supreme being and, you know, he's a nice guy. And, uh, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm sort of nice, he'll be nice to me. Uh, but there's no real, real engagement with that divinity. And certainly, uh, you know, they live like pagans. Uh, so, and Cardinal Ratzinger, before he became Pope Benedict XVI, spoke many, many times about, he had a prognostication that in the future, and he meant about this time, the, the church, church would decrease in numbers but having decreased in numbers would increase in uh, influence precisely because of a very, very strong um, seed that would function within society or a leaven in society uh, by having people who are intensely committed uh, rather than simply, you know, hangers on who come for, you know, sort of social sacraments, you know, baptism, first communion, wedding, and, and so on. So, I, I, I'm not sure, well, I don't have a crystal ball about this, but those are sort of my instincts at the moment. Father Peter Stravinskis, thank you for joining us, sir. You're welcome. Always good to be with you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.